Welcome to the Craft Brewery Financial Training Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers to provide you with tips, tactics, and strategies so that you can improve financial results in your brewery. I'm your host, Kerry Shumway, a CPA, CFO for a brewery, and a former CFO for a beer distributor. I've spent the last 20 years using finance to improve financial results in our beer business. Now I'm helping other craft breweries to do the same. Are you ready to take your brewery financial results to the next level? Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Craft Brewery Financial Training Podcast. My name is Kerry Shumway and I'll be your host. Today I talk with Bart Watson, the Chief Economist for the Brewers Association. Bart and I dive into a number of different topics, notably the 2021 craft beer trends, looking at market share, openings and closings, Bart's key takeaways. We dig in on seltzers and talk about the growth trajectory in this category from several years ago to where it is now and Bart's outlook for 2022 and beyond. We look at on-premise. Obviously, this took the biggest hit during the pandemic, so we'll talk about where 2021 landed and compared to, say, 2019 and what the outlook is going forward. So we get into a lot of great topics. I really enjoyed this discussion, and I think you will too. So many great takeaways. So for now, please enjoy this podcast with Bart Watson, the Chief Economist for the Brewers Association. All right, Bart, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad I could join. So we're going to dig into a lot of details, data, um, and so forth. But before we do that, tell us a bit about your background and your journey to become the chief economist for the Brewers Association. Yeah, uh, there aren't a lot of chief economists at, at beer organizations, so I don't think there's one you know single path to, to getting there, but mine was you know a unique one nonetheless. Um, I was planning to be an academic. I was actually a, a professor at the University of Iowa and found the BA job because I was doing a lecture on excise taxes and needed some data on, on excise taxes. And the BA site had some info. And while I was there, you know, when you're an early stage academic, you're just really good at clicking on the jobs page and I'm everywhere. Um, and they had a job and I applied. And my wife, who's much smarter than me, clearly said, when they offered it to me, said, you have to take it. We're going to move to Boulder. And she was right. It's been a been a great eight plus years since then. That's fantastic. A lecture on excise taxes was that well attended? Uh well, you know, I think I required attendance, so I'm sure it was, it was very well attended. But it was, you know, it was a good lecture on kind of you know the differences between public health and public policy and where they overlap. And I actually think the the students enjoyed that one because I talked about beer a lot better than the rest of the health policy class I was teaching. That's great. And so was that your uh, area of, of study? You were a professor and, and that was your... your yeah, so my PhD is actually in political science, um, but I've always done economic topics. So kind of political economy, you know, studying economics topics with, you know, a political lens. So lend itself really well in the beer industry, which is obviously a market that is really defined by politics and regulation. Um, and, and my dissertation was on large retailers. Um, and I kind of just fell into teaching this class. There was a a professor at UC Berkeley who went on maternity leave and I taught this health policy class. And this was right around the time that Obamacare was, the debate was going on. So teaching health policy was in high demand. So I got hired at Iowa basically to teach this class. Um, and uh, yeah, look where it took me. So good, good turn of events. That's great. So we're going to get into specific data points, but if we start sort of generally speaking, what, what kind of data do you gather and where do you tend to get the information from? Yeah, you know, 
I'll say broadly and unhelpfully, you know, we gather data that we think is useful to craft breweries. And, you know, there's a bunch of different buckets there uh, and where the data comes from, you know, relates to those buckets. But, you know, first and foremost, we just try to track the, the general health of craft breweries. Um, you know, most of that data we get from breweries themselves, you know, either in the form of just our, our production survey that we do every year or in benchmarking terms. So uh, have breweries submit, you know, aggregated benchmarks on their financials or their, you know, salary structure or whatever it is. Um, we supplement a lot of that data with government data. Um, so, you know, on the salary piece, I always point people to BLS data, you know, because they're going to have occupational surveys that are going to be deeper and richer than, than we can do um, and place specific ones where we often don't have the sample size to do. Um, similarly, on our production survey, we're going to supplement that with excise tax data. Um, you know, more broadly, you know, we, we buy a lot of data um, on things that we don't think we can get the insights from the members themselves, we think are valuable. So scan data is a, a good example of this. Consumer survey data is another one. Um, you know, in general, these are buckets where I think there are things that we as an association, because we have, you know, kind of some aggregated resources can do stuff for breweries that, that most of them can't do themselves, you know. Regional craft breweries can do these types of studies or surveys or, or have this data, but you know the average member might be interested but isn't going to be able to afford it. And then finally, there's you know there's tons of government data um, that provides context for the broader market. You know I think I'm leaning on that a lot more this year with supply chain. You know looking at PPI or or looking at you know labor market data since we've had a turbulent labor market in the last you know year or two. But you know I think those are kind of the three big buckets: data we get from members themselves data we buy from aggregated sources or, you know, scan services, et cetera, um, and then government publicly available data uh, that we can look at. Mm. Yeah, there's tons of data. I think part of the confusion is so much information, but it's like, well, what do I do? It's sort of overwhelming, right? So you do a nice job of really distilling it down and not just saying, all right, here, here's all the interesting data, but like making it relevant and useful. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I mean, I, that's very much my job, right? You know, I, I'm trying to look at a lot more data points than I put up or write about every week and, and to pull out the ones that are relevant uh, to, to breweries and, you know, draw their attention there. So, you know, you'll often, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll often see, you know, there's a particular data point that I talk about kind of month over month for six months and then never talk about again because it stops being um, as relevant to the average craft breweries. You know, inflation and prices is going to be one I'm probably going to talk about a lot in the next couple of months. Um, and then hopefully, um, I won't talk about that much, you know, going forward if we can kind of move through this period. But um, yeah, appreciate the, the those kind words. Yeah, keep it coming. It's great stuff. So we're recording here in February of 2022. So it's probably still a good time to look back on 2021, kind of what happened, trends and so forth. So for this, I just want to leave it open-ended, you know, and really begin wherever you think is most relevant, whether that's the craft market share trends, the number of openings and closings that we see for breweries, or really just what are your key takeaways as you look back on 2021? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I would kind of think of two, kind of two areas here. One is that, you know, 2021 in, in some ways was kind of the reverse of 2020. So 2020, we see this huge channel shift where, you know, we as a country stop drinking as much at bars, restaurants, breweries, the draft market collapses and we buy a lot more packaged beer. And, and that kind of, you know, general shift, which was primarily caused by COVID, you know, generally swings back in 2021. So we start to see a recovery of the draft market. In general, this is good for craft brewers. And so their numbers are, are recovering. You know, we don't have our final, you know, number yet for our survey, but my estimate is growth is gonna be 7% this year. 
after a 9% drop in 2020. So, so we start to kind of recover there. At the same time, some of the things that COVID shifted or some of the longer term trends that we were already seeing continued in 2021. So, you know, openings and closings is a good example here. We, we remarkably really haven't seen closings spike that much. Um, it's kind of amazing in, in the broader context of how challenging the market it has been, how much disruption. I think it's a testament both to brewer flexibility um, as well as the massive government support. You know, we had a, a fiscal stimulus, um, you know, the, really unlike you know, we've seen in modern times. Um, but the opening rate did get affected by COVID. It was already declining. So if you go back to, you know, pre-COVID, you know, 2018, 2019, we had about 1,200 breweries that were opening, you know, any given day, if you look back from the previous year, about 1,200 breweries would have opened. And, and that had declined to when we hit COVID, we were more like 800. So it was already down when we hit COVID, but COVID has accelerated that. Um, and so we've seen, you know, an additional decline in the number of breweries opening. Um, and, and that seemed like that continued in 2021, which, you know, makes sense, right? We've got an uncertain economy, um, you know, there, it was already a competitive and mature marketplace. It's not to say breweries won't open, but they're going to be more targeted and um, it's going to be people who really know what they're doing. Um, so that's an example of a trend in 2021 that really continued from what we had seen in 2020. Um, and, and I think those are kind of two examples of, of what we're seeing in the marketplace right now. Mm, interesting. You know, I do talk to a lot of people that are still very much wanting to open a brewery. So just anecdotally, I have no data to support this other than I get emails, calls on a very regular basis that people are. So, yeah. And, I'll, you know, I'll say, I mean, we still have more than a thousand brewery and planning members of the Brewers Association. You know, this is down again from from what it was pre-COVID. So I, I still think there's interest, but, you know, moving from interest to borrowing a lot of money to actually, you know, opening a brewery, you know, there's a gap there. And I think we've seen, you know, COVID deter a few people. Interest rates are certainly going to play a, a role there too. I mean, it's it's not a coincidence that the boom of brewery openings happened at a time when it was really cheap to borrow money. Um, and so I think that's another factor that'll kind of slow brewery openings going forward if the Fed raises rates, you know, three to five times this year. Um, so, you know, there are going to be brewery openings. This is a, a market people still want to be in. It's a market there's still opportunities in, in many places geographically, but we're not going back to the era when, you know, three or four breweries were open in a day. Right. Yeah. And there certainly is a gap between, Hey, I want to do it and actually getting it open. And it's rates are certainly going to play a factor. And then just the ability to get financing is it's, it's a big challenge that that's, that's where I'm seeing the biggest resistance point. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I like to point out that if we go back a few years, breweries were, maybe not a guaranteed bet, but as close to a guaranteed bet as you could get in small business. Literally the industry with the lowest default rate on SBA loans for a decade. Um, so this was something where, you know, people would kind of throw money at you if you wanted to open a brewery five years ago. And, um, you know, I don't talk to bankers every day, but when I do that, I mean, that's really shifted. You know, they're still willing to lend money to a brewery, but, you know, it really has to be a, a thought out model, you know, that you've thought about location, you've thought about business model, you've got you've got some previous experience. Um, and I think that's going to be a challenge to, to, you know, some people will still have the rich uncle and they can, you know, open a brewery because uh, they have money. But for those who are trying to finance it, I think it's going to be more challenging, in, in, at least in the next couple of years. So let's dig in a bit on seltzers, everybody's favorite topic, or at least it was for a while there. What are you seeing in terms of the growth trajectory in the category from several years ago? Uh, to today, and what are you seeing for the outlook for the coming year? Yeah, so so seltzers have slowed, 
um, you know, it doesn't mean that they've gone away. Um, I think sometimes people confuse lack of explosive growth for, for meaning something's collapsed. And you know, what we saw with Seltzer last year is, I think it reached kind of the end of its explosive growth stage. Um, you know, wasn't getting free trial from customers anymore. It wasn't getting new distribution. Um, you know, it was in every retail outlet it was going to be in by and large. Um, and, and so it stopped kind of getting some of the free growth it was getting, not to mention that you know, I think it just reached kind of a natural point in its development where it was going to, you know, the, the top of that S-curve where it was going to slow a little bit. So, you know, that said, it, it is still, I think, growing. Um, depends on what, how you look at it, what, you know, time period you're looking at week over week. Um, I do think there's, it, it likely will grow again. Um, nowhere near what we've seen in the past, but, you know, it's clear that the, there are brands there, they're doing a lot of innovation you know, we can argue about whether it's really innovation or if it's just, you know, putting new flavors and marketing in there. But, you know, they're going to have things that are not offered in the marketplace this year uh, for some of those leading brands. So, you know, I think it's it's ended the beginning and it's moving on to kind of a, a more mature phase. We'll see how, kind of how sticky it is, you know, what brands are introduced, um, you know, how some of the brand spinoffs do. Um, but, you know, it, it's still a part of the market. And I think it shows, you know, there's a, a consumer demand there that's, that's going to be sticky and it, it's going to be around for a while. Do you have data to kind of tease out the difference between, say, craft seltzer and, and big seltzer and how those compare? Yeah, you know, I don't know if it's an oxymoron to say craft seltzer, but, you know, certainly there are, you know, regional seltzers produced by, you know, by smaller brewers. Um, you know, that, that is something we can look at. We can look at and scan data. Um, you know, I would say if I was trying to summarize it in a couple sentences, it's that those craft seltzers are, are very small. Um you know, they're, some of them are cycling much better than others. We do see ones that are growing, but we also see ones that, that had a real tough 2021. They faced some of the headwinds that I talked about the overall seltzer category, you know, not getting that kind of free growth in, in distribution. We also, you know, had that channel shift that I talked about too. And seltzer is not entirely, but an almost entirely off-premise business. So, you know, if off-premise sales fall, that's going to prove challenging for a lot of seltzer brands that don't get that volume, you know, back in the on-premise like a beer brand might. Um, so I think it's a mixed bag in craft seltzer. You know, this is still a very top heavy uh, market where the top two market players have a tremendous amount of share. And, and then, you know, the next three or four players still have, um, you know, a lot of the share too. I think there are some opportunities at the small local regional level, but, you know, we're seeing distributors and retailers also want to simplify this segment um, and focus on growth. And, and so that's going to pose challenging for some craft brands, particularly those that that really tried to gain a lot of geographic footprints. And so maybe aren't as relevant in some of those further away markets, very much like we saw with, you know, craft brewing five years ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was wondering if there's room to run there for the craft seltzers. And that's interesting that, and this isn't necessarily a, an analytical question for you, but maybe just from your perspective, like when, when you think of craft seltzer versus craft beer, is it, these are just apples and oranges or, does that resonate with the consumer that if it's a, if it's a local craft brewery coming out with their seltzer, for example? I think, you know, I think they are somewhat different, right? You know, the seltzer space has been marked, you know, it's more brands clearly are a little bit more important. Uh, it's been marked, you know, by it's in that, you know, refreshment, you know, you know, more, more almost a light beer space. Um, I think in, you know, in terms of how consumers look to it, but you know, there's also a flavor component and, um, you know, seltzer's new, it's young, and I think it will develop. There really isn't a ton of, of super, super high-end seltzer. Some people have tried to build that, but I think that's where the kind of craft local plays will be is, you know, in that price point that's a notch above, you know, what the market leaders are, and but with something different, you know, something differentiated, you know, is it, you know, is it bringing local flavors and ingredients, um, you know, is it bringing, 
you know, organic. I mean, I know there's already some bets on that by the large players as well. Um, you know, but I think some of the things, you know, flavor, variety, and that kind of value-added values component, you know, between local, between, you know, feeling better about that purchase where, where small producers will be able to play in seltzer. And um, it's always, I think, going to be a niche of this market, probably more of a niche than in the overall beer market, particularly because of the on-premise, off-premise distinction. Um, but that's not to say that it can't be a profitable niche for a few players. And, you know, a small share of a really big market is still a big number. Very true. So let's talk about on-premise, right? So you said 2020, everything shifted off, obviously. In 21, it kind of reversed. Where did it land for 2021 on-premise? And what do you see for the coming year? Yeah, I mean, the full year numbers are still going to look a little bit ugly because we had the first half of the year where, you know, we were very much in recovery mode and coming out of, you know, pretty tough numbers with, you know, last winter being similar to this winter where, you know, we saw, you know, waves of the virus really depress on-premise. But, you know, by the kind of back half of the year, you know, if we, if we exclude kind of the second half of December and, and what we're seeing now, you know, we'd settled into a place where on-premise numbers, you know, total on-premise bars and restaurants, you know, fully and spend were, were really back. Draft beer didn't do quite as well, I think, because of some of the changing ways in which people are visiting uh, restaurants, more to go, more delivery, maybe shorter uh, visits. Uh, but the draft beer was back to a place where it was probably minus 15 uh, to where it had been in 2019 levels. So, um, you know, from one perspective, that's not that's great. You know, I mean, still 15 percent below where it was. But, you know, given the draft virtually disappeared in the country and we were minus 50 for full year 2020, um, that's a good place, you know, I think to, to be, you know, going forward, uh, my sense is we may have plateaued a little bit, um, you know, we'll see what this summer brings. And if, you know, the Omicron wave really is over and people feel more comfortable, we'll, I think we'll get back maybe above that minus 15, but, but there's still barriers to us fully coming back. You know, we lost a lot of, of bars and fast casual restaurants that serve a lot of draft beer, uh, to go and delivery are still bigger parts of the business than, than they were, um, so I think we're going to continue to, to see some recovery, but but there's still some limits on on how much we can get back. And I don't think we're drafts fully going to be back till, you know, 23, 24 um, or, or maybe later. I mean, it may it may, you know, just see a plateau where we don't fully get back to the level. That sounds painful, Bart. I was hoping for better news there. Yeah, you know, and I, I mean, that's a really important thing for craft brewers. Um, you know, my, my job is is not to be a cheerleader. It's it's to be realistic. And I, you know, I, I just think there's still some barriers, not to mention that there's some percentage of the population that's still really wary about stuff. And, you know, I was listening to NPR yesterday and they were like, well, after Omicron, is everybody, you know, going to gonna feel comfortable coming back? And the answer is no. I mean, some people are, are just not. Um, and, and, you know, right now, CGA surveys say, you know, 9% of people aren't comfortable dining inside. And that's still a, a big chunk of consumers and, and a big chunk of why that, that draft number is not where it is. So um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of these are concentrated too in metro areas that are, you know, big draft markets. So um, we'll see, you know, I, I think it will get back there. Humans are resilient. I'm an optimist and, and humans have survived, you know, wars and pandemics over the years. But, you know, I, I don't think we should expect this to snap back to normal given just how big a shift it was for, for so many people and so many businesses. Yeah. So let's pivot a bit here. I want to talk about this term that uh, some folks might not be familiar with, and that's that's uh, Kraft's leaky bucket. So maybe you can describe for us what this is, who coined the phrase, and what breweries could do um, related to this this saying to kind of continue to grow. Yeah. So so the leaky bucket is a conceptual idea that that Jim Cook you know talked about a lot you know ten five ten years ago. 
Um, and he, he always used it to describe Boston beer as business model, that you had this leaky bucket that was filled with, with premium and premium light beer, and that those companies and brands were just losing volume. There were little holes in the bucket, and you know, volume was spilling out. And Boston Beer's business model was to put little cups underneath all of the holes. So, you know, craft beer was one of these, and it was catching a lot of that volume. And, you know, FMBs were another, and cider was another one. And, you know, what you saw was for years, craft was arguably the most successful category at catching those leaks. You know, light beer continued to lose volume, and um, craft captured a lot of that volume. It wasn't quite one-to-one, but but craft was capturing the majority of the beer volume that the large brewers were losing. And you know, what we've seen in the last couple of years is that that bucket is still leaking. Those big brands are still losing volume basically at the same rate that they were for all of the years that Kraft had explosive growth. But increasingly, there's a wider set of companies and brands that aren't just in beer, but are across beverage alcohol that are capturing that volume. Um, and, and that craft brewers, you know, haven't been as good at, at capturing the, the customers who are moving out of light beer and into something else. And and so in thinking about this, you know, I wrote an article about this on the Brewers Association website if you want to get kind of longer um, thoughts here. But I really suggested brewers need to think about three things. Uh, one is innovation, that, you know, craft is not the, the most innovative category anymore. Not to say it isn't innovative, but that there's lots of parts of, of beverage alcohol that are offering new and different. Um, and so craft has to, to keep doing that. You know, it's not just a, a new hop in your, you know, single hop IPA. Um, you know, second, I think craft has to continue broadening. You know, I, I coined this in the article, welcoming more tourists, you know, people who aren't kind of core craft loyalists, but, you know, demographics, you know, the people who, who are looking into craft, you know, we have to continue to, to welcome new people into the category um, to, to get them to visit and then hopefully stick around. And, and finally, then, you know, craft has to, has to grow, not just in its strengths, but in some of its weaknesses in, in retail distribution and specific channels. And you know, one I pointed to was, was convenience. Um, convenience remains a huge channel for beer. Um, and it's one that crafts, you know, still hasn't really penetrated, um, you know, at, at anywhere near the share levels we see. Um, and, you know, if craft had the same share in convenience it had in grocery, I mean, this would be a tremendous opportunity, not to mention the share that it has an on-premise, which, I mean, that's never going to happen. But um, you know, I think those are kind of just low-hanging fruit that I see that the brands, as they think about kind of capturing more of that volume that, you know, is going to be going away. Light beer is going to keep losing volume in that convenience channel. So what can craft do to, to capture a little bit more of it? Mm, that's good. Uh, so uh, I'll link to that article so people can check that out. But uh, I want to dig in on each of those points you just brought up. So innovation um, and not just adding a different kind of hop, but does innovation, uh, from your perspective, include widening the portfolio, i.e. getting into Seltzer's, RTDs, what, what, what have you, or is it innovation within beer specifically, or both? I, I think there's opportunities in both directions. And, you know, any company, anybody who's ever asked me a question, um, you know, and asked for my advice knows, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to try to provide you, you know, data points and, and ways to think about it. Um, but I think a lot of this depends on, you know, what kind of company you are, you know, what your brands stand for, what your customer base is. And I think there's opportunities in both directions. You know, certainly the kind of beyond beer or, or fourth category, as it's been, you know, called a lot recently. I was at a conference that kept referring to it as a fourth category, which I think works as well to pull in, you know, RTD spirits, um, is going to be a growing opportunity. Um, that doesn't mean it's going to work for every company, right? If you're a um, you know, German lager brewer who really, you know, markets around tradition and classic stuff, you know, rolling out a, you know, a hibiscus hard seltzer is probably not going to resonate. You know, maybe you could do it in another different brand, but um, so, so I think there's, you know, opportunities in that direction, but it's not going to be for everyone. 
Um, within the beer space, you know, I think there still are opportunities. And, um, you know, I mean, we see the large brewers do this, you know, all the time. Um, and, you know, maybe it's easy to say, oh, it's just marketing, it's not innovation. But, you know, they're, they're introducing brands that subtly shift positioning, that, that try to go after different consumers that have different value propositions. Um, you know, this is challenging for, for many craft brewers who are on more, you know, limited budgets and don't have, you know, uh, extensive R&D. But, um, you know, if you look at hard seltzer, for example, it really checked a lot of boxes that they were like light beer, but for a next generation. It had a wide range of flavors. It was gluten-free. Um, you know, it could be marketed as low sugar, even though it's, you know, made from sugar. Um, you know, it, it did a lot of things that, that today's consumers are looking for. And I think there are ways to translate that into the beer market as well. Um, it just, you know, it takes time. It takes thinking about it. It takes innovation. You know, one example, the beer craft brewers are doing pretty well right now, I think, is non-elk. Um, that, you know, works for, there are a lot of consumers who are looking for this. It's a growing space. It's a niche, but those are the kind of places craft brewers can play. And that required innovation in, in process and, you know, thinking about flavors. Um, so, I mean, that's an example. And I'm sure there's lots of others that, that we could think of if we spent a lot of time and effort on this, but where brewers could do that within beer as well, if, if that's what they want to stick in. So point one was innovation. Point two was, I'm paraphrasing, this is sort of like uh, making a bigger tent, right? Welcoming new people in. How, how do you, what have you seen in that regard? Because I think people would say, well, yeah, that makes sense. But how do you do that? I mean, if you're trying to bring people in, what have you seen that's been successful? Yeah, you know, I, th I think there's, you know, some of this is just work in your community on, you know, really strategically thinking about, you know, who comes through your brew pub or tap room or who buys your brands and, and what are we doing to authentically, you know, really engage with the people who aren't doing that. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who, who probably don't drink your beer, um, but, you know, could if you introduce them to it in a different way, you know, and that means going into different venues than you're in now, you know, pushing your comfort level in, in terms of where, you know, you're putting your marketing spends, you're working with different partners to, to engage. Um, you know, they craft, Increasingly, if we're all kind of fighting for the same pie, we're just slicing it up more and more and more. You know, we got we got to find you know kind of what's the next step out to to bring in new people. I think the other way you know that I think about it is is doing this with brands. You know, being willing to split off brands that that do very different stuff. Um, in the article, you know, I I pointed and gave kudos to Firestone Walker, which you know was was fairly big, but was kind of a geeky IPA company um, in terms of what they made. Um, and, you know, totally pivoted with 805, which, you know, I don't have a ton of insight there, but feels to me like it was very strategically thought out and thought out to be a brand that appealed to a wide range of beer drinkers who are not their current beer drinkers. Um, and that's not to say that some people who were picking up Union Jack aren't picking up 805 now, but, you know, th that's a very different bet for them and it's a very different direction. And, and they did a great job of managing that while, you know, still making, um, you know, fun beers that, that, that beer geeks wanted to drink. So, um, I think those are two examples of ways that, you know, people can kind of broaden who they're going after and, and try to reach new markets. Nice. All right. So one was innovation, two was broaden and welcome more people. And the third is, is getting better at retail uh, penetration or, and or execution. So you'd mentioned convenience is really, for lack of a better word, under, under, under indexed. Um, how far under is it? And what, what do you, what's your sense as to why that might be? Yeah, you know, I'm not going to remember the, the exact numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, I mean, you look at share, you know, in, in convenience and, you know, versus grocery versus, you know, total, you know, I mean, grocery, you know, craft is, I'm going to make up numbers here, let's say 15 share, um, you know, multi-outlet, you know, kind of the broad universe, let's say it's eight share, you know, convenience is four share. Um, and, and convenience is, is big, 
too. So, you know, you're talking about a, a, a big opportunity here and, and um, I could probably provide better data on, you know, what those exact share numbers are. Um, but, you know, some of what it's gonna take to get there is, is exactly the two strategies that I just talked about. The customers in convenience are different than the customers in groceries, who at least the ones who are buying beer by and large, you know, and some of them are gonna overlap, but on average, you know, you just have a different consumer and they're looking for different stuff. You know, that's a, that's a single serve market. Uh, where people are gonna, you know, pick up, um, you know, beverage and, and drink it on the go. Um, so they're looking for different things than than what they're looking for when they go to the grocery store to stock their fridge for the week. Um, and you know, again, this isn't gonna work for everyone, and not everyone's gonna want to play everywhere. And, and many craft brewers don't have the capacity, right? Like I'm not talking to the taproom brewer who, you know, is already at 80 or 90 percent capacity. You know, I'm not suggesting they unlock convenience, but you know, the more brewers are putting the right you know, product in the right places to, to welcome new people in, the more that's gonna have an opportunity to, to grow the small brewer category. And, and convenience is still one of those that just clearly craft brewers really haven't unlocked with a few exceptions. You know, Some people do very well there, but, um, and I think we've got offerings that, that play well there. You know, and, and you do see inklings of this too. I mean, you know, the, the 19.2 format and, and Imperial IPA, you know, I think some of that's being driven by, by convenience and by brands that are being marketed there. But, um, you know, it, it, it's still a huge opportunity that if craft, you know, doesn't have to catch up to where it is in grocery, but if it can catch up a little bit, you're talking about a lot of volume opportunity that can get spread around for everyone. That's awesome. Yeah, you can kind of re reverse engineer it and say, all right, you know, who are the customers that are coming in? What are they looking for? And then how could we provide those things if we're not doing it already? Um, I love that. Great, great uh, point. Thanks for elaborating on that. Um, I'm always curious to hear about anything new on the horizon? Are you seeing anything in the data? You know, seltzers, at least from my perspective, seem to kind of come out of the blue, took off like crazy, and now it has a kind of plateaued as we've talked about. But anything you're seeing um, in that regard, anything new coming down the pike? Yeah, I don't know that there's one thing. Um, you know, I, I've already stolen a couple of things from, from Jim Cook, you know, I'll, I'll say too. I mean, he was asked about this at a conference I was at recently. And he basically said, seltzer's a once in a lifetime. I mean, you know, seltzer will, the thing it looks the most like when we kind of look historically is light beer, which was also kind of a once in a generation, um, you know, innovation in terms of the size and its, its ability to grow. So I don't think we're going to see anything like seltzer. Um, you know, I broadly mentioned kind of this fourth category of, of goods that, you know, fit kind of in between beverage alcohol categories. You know, I think the, the similarities are that they can, they can go in a can and, you know, and they typically have a fair amount of flavor, but, you know, ready to drink spirits is, is clearly growing a lot. You know, we, we see wine, wine products, canned wines, but also kind of, you know, wine spritzers, you know, in this bucket as well, FMBs, which, you know, people are quick to write off FMBs because the individual brands splat, but that total category continues to grow and, um, you know, continues to be one that, you know, introduces a lot of new flavors and does a lot of the innovation that, um, that I was talking about earlier. So, so that's kind of one, you know, area that, that's clearly going to grow. And, you know, if spirits uh, gets their wish and sees more, you know, tax equalization for, for RTD spirit products too, they're going to get more wins there. Though the beer industry is pretty united in fighting that. Um, and, you know, check in with your state guild, see, see where that's at in your state and, and how you can help. Um, within beer, um, you know, I think we're, we're seeing still kind of what we've seen in the last couple of years is, is craft is, fracturing a little bit um, and that we're continuing to see growth in high ABV and continuing to see growth in low ABV. Um, you know, high ABV is still driven by IPAs, uh, double IPAs, IPA mix packs growing very strongly. Um, and low ABV is driven by a wide range of products, you know, blonde ales, gold ales, lagers, 
Kolsch's, light sours. Um, but, you know, I'm still a believer that that bucket is a big one that could grow a lot more over time. You know, the vast majority of the beer market is still four to 5% beers. Um, and, you know, as craft demographic ages, once things that are more sessionable, um, not to mention, you know, people who have grown up with, with craft beer look to, to continue those brands. You know, I, I still think there's a lot of opportunity there that, you know, as I said earlier, the, the, the leaky bucket is still leaking. And the more we can take that Bud Light drinker and make them a, you know, local craft lager drinker, um, you know, that's still a huge volume opportunity for a lot of brewers. So let's talk a bit about 12 packs. What are you seeing there in the data? What are the trends and what's the share shift look like? Yeah, uh, this is one that, you know, I, I started watching kind of early in the pandemic because, you know, in addition to seeing the overall package, you know, size jump, um, you know, we saw we saw a shift within that. Um, so, so 12 packs, you know, picked up share as people, you know, wanted to do fewer grocery trips and, and buy more beer when they were doing it. Um, you know, what we've seen, interestingly, is that it's held that share, if not grown that share slightly. Um, and, and we're not talking huge amounts here. You know, we're talking about a share point or two. Um, and I think, you know, it's in between a share point or two that the 12 packs have gained uh, within craft. Um, and, and, you know, within that too, you know, you see more growth in can uh, 12 packs and, and some losses in, in bottom tw bottle 12 packs. But, you know, that's been interesting to see that, that some of that 12 pack momentum has been carried even as that channel shift has gone back, as people have gone back to shopping more frequently. Um, and to me suggests it's gonna be stickier long-term, but 12 packs are just gonna play a bigger role in the craft category, which they're about a third of, of craft volume in, in scan data right now. Interesting, okay. Well, this, this may be a tough question to answer, but do you have any data relative, say a brewery is doing, just for example, like you know, four pack, 16 ounce, and they wanna get into 12 packs. Any insights on how they might do the analysis of that cannibalization? And so maybe maybe describe what cannibalization is and then whether there's any data to support it. Yeah, so, so cannibalization is the idea that if you introduce a 12 pack, you know, suddenly somebody who buys that is not gonna buy three of your four packs. Um, or, you know, uh, you do it six packs, you know, the same. So you're gonna lose the volume on one end again on the other end. Um, the answer, uh, which is going to have this huge caveat that I'm going to give in a second, is you know when you look at this, you generally don't see that much cannibalization. Uh, when people introduce 12 packs, generally their four pack or six pack volume holds pretty well. Um, so, so breweries that have introduced 12 packs have generally been able to continue with uh, the volume that they see in, in those other packs so that this looks like it's largely incremental. The caveat here is that the companies that introduce 12 packs are not just randomly distributed and they're not doing that in a vacuum. And so you're talking about companies that already had fast growing brands that are considering this, putting this in a 12 pack, ones that were typically able to secure new distribution. Uh, and I'll say it, one key if you dig under the surface is this is really incremental if those 12 packs are new points of distribution. If you have to give up four pack and, and six pack slots to get those 12 packs, this makes a lot less sense. If you can get a new spot on the shelf, which shelf spots are precious right now to, for that 12 pack, which normally means you have a fast growing band already, um, and you know, good things and distributors are backing you and retailers are excited to get more of your products, then good things happen. But that's not, that's not gonna happen to every brewery. So, you know, if, if you've got retailers and distributors urging you to do this, the data suggests it's probably a good idea. But if nobody's asking you to do this, it's probably going to be more of an uphill battle and you're not going to see that incrementality that, that those fast growing brands are seeing. So hopefully that's clear kind of the data is very positive on this, but that's what the caveat. Not a lot of people do it. And those that do are pretty unique. 
Mm. Yeah, that, that is helpful. The new point of distribution, I think, is key. And then some analysis on, you know, from a gross margin perspective, you just do the math and the four-pack, 16-ounce package is so much more profitable for, for everyone versus the 12-pack. So from a consumer perspective, it's a bit of a balancing act because some want that, hey, a 12-pack, it's a value pack. Others, you know, I don't need 12 beers. I just want four. Um, they're willing to pay for it. So, uh, but that is helpful. And then kind of doing, you know, doing the math for yourself to see if it, if it makes sense financially. Yeah, exactly. One of your recent articles, you talked about how breweries were pivoting during the pandemic and how they've recovered. What were your key takeaways from what you learned there? Yeah, and this was very much focused on tap rooms and brew pubs. So looking at on-site at, at breweries and, you know, I wrote this article, you know, A, because I found a data source that would allow me to look at it, but B, because, you know, pivot was the buzzword of, of the last couple of years. And, and I realized nobody had really actually quantified, you know, other than with some surveys, you know, we did some surveys, um, but nobody really quantified what that pivot looked like. So uh, we got access to a, a point of sale data aggregated data source that allowed us to look at about 1200 breweries and, and really dive down into what they were selling at their brew pub or tap room. So um, are you selling draft pints? Are you selling six packs to go? Um, and, you know, the, the first kind of biggest takeaway is that at tap rooms and brew pubs, draft is back to where it was. Um, I honestly was a little surprised by this. I expected to go in seeing package sales, be elevated as a percentage of total sales from where they were when we hit the pandemic. And, um, you know, while, you know, we certainly saw package sales spike a lot, you know, kind of at the peak of the pandemic, um, you know, now you don't really see that. The draft percentage is back pretty much to, to where it was. And there might be some composition effects here, you know, the data set changes over the, the course we're looking at. But, you know, generally, I think that that shows kind of people are back to, to visiting tap rooms and brew pubs similar to what they did. And that, you know, many breweries really wanted to go back to the model that they had before. Um, you know, within that, you know, we, I, I looked at kind of some other sub things that, that I think are interested in terms of total levels. I think it also showed that, you know, again, tap rooms and brew pubs are kind of mostly getting back to, um, to where they were, but, you know, that kind of package draft look was, was really the most interesting. You know, the other thing we saw in this is that the, the public health situation, as well as geography continue to be really important for breweries and, um, in how, what is going on in the market, uh, you know, affects their individual brewery. Um, you know, this is something that I think people know intuitively, but it's always nice to see in the data that, you know, the trends in California are very different than the trends in Florida and, and they have different waves based on seasonality and, you know, government lockdowns and, um, you know, virus conditions. So, um, you know, that was another kind of takeaway is you, you really can see the data matches what people are experiencing, which you know, I think is just useful for a lot of business owners for, for validating what, you know, what they're seeing in their own businesses. Mm-hmm. Speaking of pivoting, let's pivot away from sales and let's talk about salary and compensation trends. Um, so your HR and salary benchmarking data that came out recently, what are your key takeaways from that study? What did you see there? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know that I have key takeaways. You know, I mean, this is, this is more a tool for, for brewers to use uh, more than something that I spend a ton of time digging into analyzing. Um, you know, we saw similar things to what we've seen in the past. Um, you know, one that size of brewery really matters for um, for salary levels, which you know makes sense. Um, you know, as you get larger, you're just gonna, you know, a you bigger business, you know, more productive, um, and you're gonna have the resources to, to pay more. Um, you know, we also see a lot of variation 
um, still. Um, and I always try to point brewery owners who are using this to, um, you know, other, this is where government data I talked about at the beginning, you know, can be a good resource there to understand, you know, how that variation might look geographically for your brewery or for, you know, kind of tweaks in, in your individual business model. Um, you know, I think we continue to see, um, you know, it'll be interesting to do this again. Um, you know, I think we saw some upward salary growth, but but not a ton. But obviously that was, th those numbers were kind of pre-COVID and everything, um, you know, that we've seen now. So I, I think there's a real possibility that when we release that data again, you're going to see very different levels, particularly at the low end, you know, for, for hospitality, for taproom um, staff, uh, because there's just more competition for those workers and, and breweries are having to work harder to keep them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of that, um, recruitment, retention, it's a huge deal. Have you seen any unique or particularly effective compensation strategies or packages or benefits or anything either in the data or that you've heard about? I mean, I don't know that there's one kind of, you know, singular thing here. Um, you know, I think one overall shift we've seen you know, for, for a lot of workers during the pandemic is they're, you know, they're thinking just a little more consciously about, you know, where they want to work and how they want to work. Um, and so I think the breweries that have been the most successful in retaining and, and recruiting are the ones that, that think about this holistically. And, you know, let's be honest and frank, you know, pay is a big part of this, um, but it's not the only thing. And, and creating an environment that, that people want to work in, that they feel valued in um, kind of broadly is, as I think, increasingly more important. And, you know, hearing from, from brewery owners and, you know, seeing chatter on our forum or, you know, just on other boards, um, you know, I think there's still a big gap there between businesses and the ones that, you know, I talked to one brewery owner who basically said, what labor shortage? You know, we have, we have more applicants than we've ever had before. And I think this is a brewery that does a good job of kind of holistically supporting workers. They're very transparent about salaries. They, you know, I think offer a, a pretty good benefits package. Um, and, you know, other ones who are, who are just struggling. And, and sometimes this is their, you know, challenges in their own, you know, policies, but sometimes it's also just the place they are, you know, breweries in, in like tourist mountain areas, you know, many close to us, you know, just struggle for labor because every business in that town struggles for labor. It's just an expensive place and, and the economics don't, don't work great to, to pay service workers what you need to do for them to, to live there. Um, so, I don't know, this is maybe my least helpful answer um, so far, but I, I think it's a wide range. And um, my latest new brewer article was on this subject and you know, really urged uh, employers to take a step back, think holistically about what workers want. And you know, if you're gonna retain and recruit people, um, I think recognizing that, that things have shifted um, and that you know, the next generation wants something different and that workers are looking for more. And that you know, one reason we have, I don't love the term great resignation. You know, I think the you know, great labor market turbulence might be better or a great, great, you know, great switch. Cause a lot of people aren't, they're not leaving the labor market. They're just going to a job that they think is better. Um, and the sooner kind of employers recognize that and, and where they are, are they on the side that people want to switch from or there's people that they want to switch to um, will help them reduce their turnover and, and have a, you know, a, a more stable staff. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point is, you know, they're not just dropping out entirely. They're going somewhere else. And here again, it's why, you know, look at the underlying causes of that, what's important, and then maybe shift your recruitment tactics to kind of be in line with that. So, yeah, I think yeah, asking those questions is important. So I do want to talk about supply chain just for a minute and you know, obviously all the discussion of cans and cardboard and, and CO2 shortages have been very painful and expensive. And 
so far, it looks like hops, malt generally are okay. From your perspective in the data you're, you're seeing, are there any other surprises coming? And if so, how can folks maybe plan for any potential disruption? Yeah, you know, I, I think we will see something this year we don't expect. I wish I knew what it was. Um, but, you know, I think one thing we've learned in the last couple of years is these disruptions can come quickly um, and they can come from unexpected places. So, you know, the more you, you have thought about kind of anything that is critical to your brewery, you know, thinking about what's our backup plan or, you know, can we build a little bit of buffer there, um, I, I think is important right now. Um, you know, on the malt side, um, you know, I think there there are going to be some, you know, I think it's less supply and, and maybe, you know, potential quality issues as we move into the second half of the year and we're, we're purely using uh, the 2021 year crop, which, you know, was obviously a, a challenge crop in both the U.S. and Canada uh, with really hot and dry growing conditions and so higher protein levels. Um, you know, one, one product that people aren't thinking about are, you know, enzymes that, you know, might be needed to, to treat higher protein levels and, you know, what supply look like on those. Um, but, you know, that's a market that probably will be, we, I'm sure we will see some price increases, but um, it will probably be fine unless we have another bad year or, you know, poor crops in other parts of the world. Since the malt market, you know, it's not entirely a, a global market, but, you know, is, is a fairly globalized market, though less so right now because containers are so expensive that moving stuff around, you know, isn't always as cost effective as it once was. Um, you know, hops, we really dodged a bullet, um, you know, it was similar hot weather, but it, it passed and hop most top growers were able to kind of irrigate their way out of it. So, so it seems like that's a market that's a little bit more safe, but I, you know, I think we're just going to see continued disruptions. Um, when I've talked about this and written about this, I've really tried to highlight three buckets of, of disruptions. One of the things that just increased in demand during the pandemic, and we haven't been able to catch up with on supply, aluminum cans is a primary example. We just started needing more aluminum cans almost overnight and, and we haven't caught up. Um, they haven't built the plants fast enough to, to make all the cans we need. The second are just things that the cascading challenges of stopping the economy and restarting it and, uh, you know, global supply chains have just continued to make challenging, you know, cardboard, pallets, CO2 kind of all fall in this bucket. And I think there's some signs that are starting to get a little bit better, but those are going to keep coming. And there's probably going to be pieces there that we don't see yet that are going to, going to show up in the next year or two, just kind of intermittently. And and the third big bucket is climate change, which, I mean, that's certainly a big part of the barley and malt story. Um, it could also have kind of secondary disruptions, right? A huge hurricane comes through and, you know, destroys capacity for something. Um, we experienced this in a very, very tiny way, you know, not feeling too bad for us at the BA where we lost all of our badges for CBC because they got destroyed in a warehouse in Louisiana this year. Um, you know, I mean, you just, you get disruptions that you don't expect. And, you know, imagine that hits a plant that's critical to making something in the brewery supply chain. Um, so, I mean, those are kind of the three and the, the first, hopefully now we are catching up on, right. We are catching up on supply. The second bucket is with us and it's going to be with us until we really kind of fully catch back up, which I think will happen over the course of 2022. Um, we'll still see some stuff pop up, but I think we're going to kind of catch up. And the third is just big and looming and is going to be there and, you know, products that are agricultural or, or made in places that are. Uh, threatened by climate change disruptions are going to have kind of fits and starts in their markets over time. And we're, we're going to have more bad barley years. We're going to hopefully not have a year that's similar in hops, but, you know, I wouldn't hold my breath for, you know, if we're looking over decades. So um, that's kind of what I'm seeing in the supply chain. And it's going to be a painful year for a lot of brewers. They're going to have to figure out pricing with these cost increases and, and figuring out how much of that they pass on. But 
hopefully it's one we'll get through in 23, already starting to hear, you know, better stuff on things like hand supply and um, some of the kind of longer term contracts people are talking about. Yeah, really puts a premium on planning and forecasting, right? Kind of looking what you're going to need and then having backups and contingency plans as well. So keeping an ear to the ground and uh, listening for what might be coming for those shortages. Uh, so last question for me before we wrap up, what beer industry information do you read or listen to on a regular basis? Any favorite podcasts, any favorite um, uh, newsletters or things of that nature to, to check in? Or are you just dig into the data and you're happy as a clam in there? No, I mean, you know, the data first and foremost, but, you know, I, I do try to, you know, watch and listen, you know, I get all the beer, you know, main beer newsletters, you know, Beer Markers Insights and, and Beer Business Daily, and they're often kind of good for, for identifying trends. You know, I try to, um, you know, try, try to watch uh, more than actively participate in beer Twitter and see what people are talking about and uh, following, um, you know, I also try to, to consume a lot of kind of things that are just one notch outside of beer or, or part of the beer industry, but kind of a little bit more tangential. Um, you know, to give a shout out to one in particular, I've, you know, I've really liked Rabobank's uh, podcast um, that they do their, their beverage podcast. Um, you know, it really because it, you know, touches on stuff that I'm familiar with, but, but partly because it does stuff that nobody in the beer industry is talking about, you know, let's talk about inflation and, you know, the Fed raising rates, but with an eye toward, you know, beverage alcohol, um, I think that's, that's useful to me. But I mean, there's so many great sources that um, right now, what I try to do is set up a lot of news alerts and letters. And, you know, I, I follow way more podcasts than I listen to. Um, but then, you know, you, you pick and choose and you try to say, okay, this one I think is going to be valuable. And, and so there's lots of podcasts that I'll listen to, you know, two of their episodes a year, because it seems like it's going to be that I, I can take something relevant back. And, and there's very few that I listen to every episode of. Um, I think you got to be a consumer of lots of streams of information these days. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, any questions I didn't ask? Any topics that we didn't cover that you think are important for folks to hear about now? I mean, there's, you know, there's always a million things going on in, in beer and beverage. You know, we, we've touched on a lot of them, you know, some of the, the changes in, in channels. You know, we didn't really get into the changes in hospitality, but, you know, some of that stuff's going to be important for, for brew pub and taproom operators going forward. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to, to focus on right now. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough time. I don't envy anyone who's, who's trying to run a brewery and all the, the disparate parts, but I think we did a pretty good overview of, of many of the key topics that, that people are going to be thinking about. I agree. Bart, thanks so much for the time. If people want to get in touch uh, with the Brewers Association, learn more about what you've got going on, what the association has going on, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, brewersassociation.org website is going to be the hub for, for a ton of our stuff. Um, my post there on our insights and analysis section, which is in the stats and data tab, uh, mix of, of public. So I'll try to write public posts that everyone can view and ones that are going to be for Brewers Association members only. Um, and I post little snippets of stuff. It's often a good way to get feedback and ideas on, on Twitter. Um, so if you want to follow me on Twitter, Brewers Stats, two S's in the middle there, um, you, can, you can get some free graphs uh, on the beer industry. Free graphs. That is very tempting. Awesome. Well, thanks, Bart. Thanks so much for your time. Great insights. A lot of super information here for people. So really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Craft Brewery Financial Training Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers so that you can improve financial results in your brewery. For more resources, tools, guides, and online courses, visit craftbreweryfinancialtraining.com. 
And don't forget to sign up for the world-famous Craft Brewery Financial Training Newsletter. Until next time, get out there and improve financial results in your brewery today.